I once heard this story as I read it of a junior high science teacher lecturing to their class about the properties of magnets for an entire period. And the next day, the teacher decided to give the students a quiz to find out how much they had learned. After nine questions that were given that were quite difficult, the teacher decided to throw an easy one at him. And at the end, it said this, my name begins with an M, has six letters, and I pick up things. When am I? Over half the class wrote mother. It's true. The correct answer is magnet, but today is Mother's Day, and I want to thank you for all the women in here, whether you're a mom or not. You, you mother in some way. You, you shepherd. You, you help uh, in this ministry here, and we thank you. We're glad you're here this morning, and I want to be clear at the outset that this is not a sermon just for moms, so you can breathe a sigh of relief that it's not, I'm not going to Proverbs 31 this morning. We're not going to walk through how many areas we need to grow. That's not it at all. Uh, we want to honor you today, and this sermon is for everyone. And as I s- sat to think through, who, where would I go? I went to, again, the book of Ruth, which has impacted me mightily in my life, and I thought it'd be a good to go back into that. Last summer, we, we got a chance to spend four weeks in the book of Ruth, and so I want to walk through the book of Ruth and point out just a few characteristics of her life uh, that not only moms showcase, exemplify, but I think we all should. So open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We're not going to cover every verse here this morning. Even though we could, there's only 85 verses. We're not going to. So as you're turning and before I start, would you join me in prayer? Father, we, we thank you for this morning, and God, which it's always been mentioned again, we, we will mention it another time. God, we thank you for our mothers, for those that have labored on our behalf to love us, to care for us, and we honor them today. We remember them today. Now, Father, as we look into your word in the book of Ruth, may you teach us, guide us and lead us, convict us and change us if needed. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for what you'll do in this time. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So briefly, as we kind of launch in, what's the setting of the book of Ruth? I want to make sure you're up to speed as we, we talk through a few things. But the story begins there in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Ju- Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and his name was Elimelech. He has a wife and two sons. And the, the book follows, in the arrival you can see, the, the, the book of Judges. And the last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So following right on the tail of that, the book of Ruth is set in a time where there was no king, where, where, where judges ruled in Israel. And there was a dark time for the country. And as everyone did what they wanted to do. And so sin was, was rampant because God's people had hardened their hearts towards God. And though... And the author here, Forrest and Ruth, says there's a famine. And what we learn through the study of the scriptures is that when there's a famine, it's God's judgment against his people. So it's difficult times. And Elimelech leaves home. He leaves Bethlehem, which is literally called the house of bread. It seems as though they've run out. He takes his wife and his two sons and they move to Moab. It's like moving from Puyallup to San Francisco. It's a significant move. God has delivered his people from Egypt and brought them to the land of Canaan, to a special 
place to live, and God had called Elimelech and his family to live in Bethlehem. He had no business to leave and go elsewhere, especially Moab. For Israelites, Moab was known for several things, and none of them are good, and we're not gonna go into that. You can study through that. So it seems at first the decision that Elimelech made to leave where there was no food to a place where there was plenty seems like in a practical side that it was a wise decision, that he could supply for his family. And then the unthinkable happens. Elimelech dies in verse three. Naomi is left with her sons and a decision. Does she stay in Moab or does she repent and return home? It's no shock that she stays in Moab and then Naomi's sons take Moabite women for their wives. We're not told in the story if Naomi even considered going home after her husband's death. I'm sure she thought she was still safe, taken care of by her sons, and now having two daughters-in-law. But then again, the unthinkable happens. Her two sons die, verse five. So in the space of, as you read the book, in just a few verses, Naomi's life comes crashing down. And you think, what an uplifting message for Mother's Day. Thanks. <laughs> you can picture Naomi standing before now the precipice of what life is going to be like with no husband and no sons. No hope. No family, no food. So Naomi stands there and you can most likely see her sad, tortured face. It's probably not any more tears at this point. She's just exhausted from weeping. A face of a woman broken with a tremendous loss in her life. And throughout the book, Naomi talks about early on, at least, uh, the, how empty she is. And you read this. And to the modern ear, maybe we don't understand. It's, it's hard for us in our culture to, to grasp how empty she really is. You know, every culture tells you whether you are a nobody. And it's very easy for us to look at that culture and, and just roll your eyes and say, really, you're, you're nobody? You know, yes, back then, someone lost their husband, their children, and they thought they were nobody. How strange. Haven't we become more modern than that now in 2017? Can't this woman just, just do it? A lot of you feel like a nobody in this current culture. You're overweight, or your house is too small, or your car is too old, you're a nobody. You know, Naomi's appearance didn't bother her one bit and affect her. And the, the answer is our, our culture in some ways dictates whether we feel for a nobody or not. You know, everybody gets some level of self-esteem from the culture in which they live. If a culture tells you you're a nobody because you don't have what the culture has, then it's prone to feel like a nobody. And friends, I'm not accusing you of this and holding you to a certain standard that I don't fit because I'm guilty of it too. I compare myself to the culture in which I live and it's not healthy. And as you read through the book of Ruth, God works in a way to remove the focus on what we don't have to what he will supply. You know, moving on the story, look at verse six there. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on her way to return to the land of Judah. No other choice, it seems. Now Naomi finally decides to return to her home country. There's, there's no more hope for her in Moab. And she hears that God has, has given food to Bethlehem. The house of bread seems to be restocked. 
But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, it says, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the dead and with me. So they're on their way back and she pauses to, to send them back. And, and I want, the first thing I want you to notice this morning, the first thing I want you to highlight and write down is Ruth displays true friendship. One characteristic, one thing we learn from Ruth in this is she displays true friendship. The Hebrew text, which the original form of this book is written in, uses a word that carries a powerful meaning which is lost in the English translation. The word is hest. And it's used repeatedly in the Old Testament. It refers to God's love for us. It's an unconditional love. The word was first used to describe the nature of the covenant between us and God. In a covenant, both sides agreed to terms in which a typical covenant, if one side uh, broke the agreement, the other side was then released from obligation to that covenant. But in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, we're told that this is unlike any of those typical covenants. God's love for us is hest. It's unconditional. It's unmerited. In other words, even when we fail, God continues to love. God never stops loving. Jesus, who was faithful to God's covenant, bore the curse because of our unfaithfulness and disobedience in order that we would experience true peace and salvation. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might, become, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God's hest, his unconditional love, his loving kindness has been poured out to us. He's been loyal to his covenant promise, whatever the cost to himself, even the cost of the death of Jesus. Well, hest is also referred to and used, used to describe Ruth's love for her mother-in-law. This, this, this hest, this love that she displays here is also what attracts Boaz to Ruth. We won't get to that this morning. You can read that later in chapter three. And this is even before Boaz meets Ruth. He hears about her. The word is out. Have you heard about, about this Moabite woman, Ruth, who is loving and loyal to her deceased husband's mother? Boaz says about her in chapter two, verse 11, he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. I've heard about it from other people. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. In essence, Boaz is saying, I have heard that you are a godly woman, that God's love and loyalty are already manifested in your life. I, I see it displayed. And Hess was displayed in, in Ruth because she was loyal. And from the very beginning of the story, we find a woman who refuses to abandon her mother-in-law. When Naomi began the journey home and her daughter, daughters-in-law began following, Naomi turns to release them. She basically says, you're still young. You, you can marry here in your country. Go back. No one will marry you in Israel. She knows how people will treat them. They're immigrants. They're hated foreigners. She's saying, there's no point in returning with me. You're, you're wasting your life to come with me. Stay with your family. And the story tells us that Orpah, one of Naomi's daughters-in-law, does return to her family. But, but Ruth, no, the, the scriptures say Ruth 
clings to her. And that's powerful imagery. She wouldn't let her go. And in verse 16 and 17, Ruth then pledges her, her allegiance. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he pledges this devotion to Naomi. She says, but Ruth, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That's loyalty. True friendship. And we're not really told why Ruth does this, but I may suggest that she recognizes who Naomi is and that she's getting older, and Ruth knew it. Ruth knew that there would be no one to take care of her mother-in-law, no one to provide for her and the basic needs that she had. But even more so, I believe that Ruth came to know God. She came to know this covenant God. And she wanted to go to Bethlehem. You know, Naomi was too old to remarry. And so Ruth decided that she would continue the commitment that she had made to her deceased husband by caring for his mother. And that kind of loyalty is rare. We live in a culture that is so self-centered that relationships are forged and broken on the basis of convenience. And very seldom do we see that kind of loyalty that Ruth shows in this story. And yet, even though it's so rare in our culture, I can see so many of your faces here this morning that I, I recognize the loyalty you have. I see it. Many mothers sitting here. I don't know if you know this, church, but we have a long line of faithful women in this church. Amen. Decades and decades and decades. Someone else can say amen, by the way, too. <laughs> Not only loyal to this church, but loyal to the Lord. That's more important. And we all will be faced with many decisions to, to leave friendships and to break commitments, but we as Christians should be known for a deep loyalty in our friendships. And I want to challenge you this morning to commit to the relationships that you're in, whether it's work or school or family or friends, and be loyal. You know, it's a, it's a trait that Ruth is remembered for. And so Naomi and Ruth head off towards Bethlehem. In chapter 1, verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and, the Ruth, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, her returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And I'm even more impressed with Ruth's dedication to Naomi and to God. She's now stuck. She's hitched to a woman that is very unpleasant. Naomi means pleasant. Her name means this. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. You can see that walking into town. Don't, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Great. Can't wait for this. You don't see that at all in her attitude. But we need to think, put herself into Naomi's position. She's moved from one country to another. She's humiliated, coming back, her two sons, her only means of living, 
married woman from another country that they were taught to have nothing to do with. Her husband dies while she's not in Bethlehem. She's grieving, she's hurting deeply. Then both of her sons die, leaving her more distressed. And she's angry about what has happened. But Ruth too, she she lost her father-in-law, she lost her husband. She's now moved to a new country. She's the immigrant. New customs, new language, new people. And the story begins in such a dark way. Naomi believes that God has left her. She believes that she has nothing left, and yet, who's standing next to her? Ruth, a loving and loyal friend. And I'll tell you something, friendship is one of the most powerful things on earth. As great as marriage is, the essence of what makes marriage unbelievably good is friendship. And yet we have the the privilege to experience friendship outside of the marriage relationship. And Ruth displays to us this enormous commitment of courage and love to Naomi. And Naomi is going to be changed in the story because of the magnitude of, of Ruth's friendship to her. You know, folks, this is how people find God. It's not through sermons. It's not through programs. You know, those are just artillery. That's, that's what we use, to, to, but it's through people. People are what draw other people to ask the questions and find out who God is. Friends, it's, it's you. God has placed you here to, to have friendships with other people. And, and what everybody in this world needs is an encounter with a divine God And that usually happens through friendships where people can experience unconditional love. They see it displayed before them. By the way, if if you want to know how to build a friendship, there there are two components in the text this morning. I don't know if you noticed it. They're, They're in Ruth's statement to Naomi. Two things she says to have a good friendship. The first thing is you have to make time. She says, Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. You have to make time in the friendship. The second thing is you also have to have a commitment. She says that nothing will part us but death. death. And in making those two commitments to to love and be loyal, you'll have a friendship. And and I pray that we as a church will have many friendships, not, not just with brothers and sisters in Christ, but friendships outside of that, people you want to introduce to Christ. So that's the first thing, noticing of Ruth loyal and loving. The second is Ruth displays a humble work ethic. She displays a humble work ethic. And we can recognize the hardworking humility of Ruth as we read in chapter 2, verse 13, in the response of, of Boaz's praise of her dedication to Naomi. And in that chapter, in that verse, then she said in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And in this, and in the story, and in the life of Ruth, is a display of meekness and quietness of spirit, which is a hallmark that Peter displays for the church of how we should be, and women in particular. He says in 1 Peter 3, 4 and 5, but let your adorning be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. 
And we need to be careful not to misunderstand what Peter is saying. The holy women that, that Peter is talking about were different from each other in personality. Some, by nature, were very quiet. Others, by nature, were very, not well, extrovert, that's a better word. But in spirit, but in spirit, whatever the personality, they had these qualities in common, a gentleness and a quiet peace and a poise in spirit. And in Ruth's life, these qualities are displayed in the way she handled the harsh providence that's, that's given to her. She submitted to the hand of God and looked to serve him in the opportunities that were placed before her. She trusted in God. This is what meekness is, a submission to God's providence, listening to God's voice, especially when his, his word cuts against our natural fleshly desires, when it cuts against our, our natural longings for life. Meekness is saying, Lord, you have given this to me. And you've instructed me to be obedient, so I will trust you in this. And, and, and friends, this disposition to the Lord will be displayed to others. People will observe this. They will see our meekness. Well, the world around us cringes at Ruth's speech to Boaz in chapter 2, verse 13. Primarily because it refuses to humble itself and accept the grace of God which would then lead to meekness. The world prides itself on what it can do and misses the profound blessings of the Lord. And I believe we live in one of the most ungrateful periods of human history, at least in the Western world, which has abandoned the gospel. Instead of gratefulness, we have replaced it with words of contempt when we don't receive what we want. Are we churning out a new generation of grumblers and complainers? When things don't go by our standards, don't go the way we want, we, we're going to take to the streets and let people know. And if not that, we're going to take to social media. But in contrast, the, the meek and gentle are appreciative of every blessing that comes from God and his kindness to us. And this is a characteristic of Ruth. And if I were to point to the people that I admire most in this life, I can guarantee they have something in common. They think of others more than themselves. And I want to strive in my own life to remember it as that sort of person. You know, in the book of Ruth, we find a woman who is more concerned about the needs of someone else than her own. We find a, a woman who's extremely humble who says in response to Boaz, well, why, why have I found favor? She's saying, who am I? The reality is too many of us are trying to get noticed. Rather than simply working hard and living our lives as we know we ought to, and we become obsessed with what others think to the point that our pride then gets out of control. And one of the, the best traits that we can embody is the, is the humility and high respect of others. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And I'm gonna be honest with you, that verse is easy to read, easy to quote, but hard to obey. So I asked myself, why is it hard to obey? And the simple answer is because I want what I want. 
You know, James 4 gives us further insight of the problem. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures or passions that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, it's hard for us to obey Philippians 2.3 because we want what we want. We need to remember what Jesus commanded for us to love our neighbor as ourself. Paul continues in Philippians 2.4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Another blow to our self-centered lives. You know, the, the word interest here is not just a filler word that Paul just inserts for the, well, I need a longer sentence. Literally, the Greek reads, do not merely look out for your own. Do not merely look out for your own house, but your neighbor's house. Do not merely look out for your own well-being, but your family's well-being. Do not merely look out for your own comfort, but the comfort of your brother. And as Christians, we should be known as people that think of others more than we think of ourselves. We should be loyal because that is what God instructs us. It's honorable people do. Ruth is humble. She's also a hard worker. You know, in Israel, Ruth begins providing for both herself and her mother-in-law by gleaning from the fields of the remnants. And an Old Testament law mandated that farmers were to leave these remnants for, for poor people and for widows to come and get and the poor and widows would come along behind the workers and, and pick up the, the excess. It was not a glamorous job. It was hard work. It was usually done in the sun and the heat. In verse 1 in chapter 2, it says, Now Naomi had a relative, her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall, I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. I love that phrase there in verse 3. She just happened to come to his field. And the author's communicating something to us. She pursues the task that God has given her and in, in his providence. And what he's given her is work, hard work. And Ruth takes the initiative. Naomi doesn't say, go out there and work. We don't read that anywhere. Ruth, Ruth does it on her own accord. Ruth shows her amazing dedication to Naomi and takes the initiative to work to provide for their needs. She doesn't take a handout uh, or approach the dire situation of having nothing by demanding others to give. She goes to the fields. And Ruth does not go door to door to inform her new neighbors that she's heading to work. That's social media. Like, we should be proud of her. That's what most social media is. I mean, can you imagine what she would say? Hey, guys. Uh, just waking up this morning, and I'm going to take a picture of my, uh, my scriptures so you can see that I'm in the Word. And, and then the next, uh, I'm going to go hang out to the, to the fields to earn. Hashtag going to work, right? Hashtag off to the fields I go. Hashtag God is good. Hashtag Ruth is working it. If you don't know what hashtag is, ask your kids or grandkids. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't go next door and knock on the door. Hey, guys, take notice of what's going on here. 
She goes and she works. She doesn't do it for following. She doesn't do it to impress anyone. She, she does it in service of God. She does it to serve her mother and Lord. She does it because she's loyal. She does it because she loves. And she works hard. So much so that the landowner, Boaz, notices her and asks about her. You know, the author even makes a point of referencing her work ethic, saying that she started working in early morning, probably around 5 a.m., and is still there at the end of the evening. She's industrious. She's a remarkable worker. And this is the example we should leave for our kids. You know, not only should we go into the book of Ruth and, and read it for our kids and, and, and discuss it, but we should display this. So whether you have kids or not, folks, you display for my kids what hard work look like, looks like. We do this as a church, as a family. They should see it in us. And when we read in the Old Testament, we read that God is a, a divine worker who provides for us the understanding of human work. The Bible opens with a picture of God at work, speaking, creating, forming. And throughout the Old Testament, God not only appears as a subject of many work verbs, but people refer to him as a worker. And throughout the Old Testament, God commands people to work according to the divine pattern. God works directly and God works through people. And just so you know, kids, if you're here, work is not a bad thing. We were created to work. And I don't want to burst your bubble, but you're going to work in heaven. And it'll be a good thing. He's made us this way. We're created to work. And he says in this chapter here, we're going to have blessing. Ruth talks about this, even the blessing in her life. It's significant. Verse 12 of chapter 2, she says, The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz speaking about, about Ruth there, excuse me. And all these blessings expressed is the assurance that God is at work to provide for his people. God, or Ruth desired to receive the blessing from God for her, her work, her productivity, whether that came directly from God or from the people that God worked through. And despite being a Moabite woman, a foreigner, an immigrant, I say that word on purpose, folks, because we have immigrants among us, she worked she was even wiser than many in Israel when it came to realizing the Lord's hand is working in her life. And Ruth is a model for us. So what do we do with the book of Ruth? You know, I realize, at least I've come to realize that the book of Ruth is for the normal person. Anyone feel just normal here? Just normal. This book is for someone who thinks there is no hope. There seems to be no hope in this book because God works under the surface. You know, this is what the book of Ruth teaches us. We, we must never lose hope no matter what's going on. And we need to remember, when everything else in this world is, is fighting against this thought, we need to remember that God is doing 10,000 things for his glory and for our good that we can't even see. When it seems he's absent, when it seems he's not listening. This is a story for people who look at their life and see no dramatic answers to prayer, no, no dramatic events 
but they only see the mundane and hard times. The book of Ruth shows us that God is working in those hard times. He's, he's there during the mundane. And he's working in 10,000 ways for us that we will eventually see for his honor, his glory, and for our good, even though we can't see it. And when, when Naomi, Naomi comes back and says to everyone, she walks into town and, and she says, I'm empty. Who's walking right beside her? Ruth. The incredible treasure of God, Ruth. You know, I wonder her friends are saying, you say you're empty, but who is with you? I'm sure Ruth maybe thought the same thing. What am I, chopped liver? And the point is, Naomi had an agenda, and because her agenda is not God's agenda, she feels empty, and she cannot see any hope. She hasn't even seen the great things that God has given to her right next to her. And I realize that some of you are here in that same place this morning. You have an agenda and things haven't gone the way that you want. And you're either blind to the incredible things that God has placed right next to you or even the things that he's placed in your life, circumstances, or you just don't want to see it. You won't see it. And because of it, you have no hope. This book teaches you that in the mundane things, God is there. He's doing magnificent things for his children, even though you can't see it. He hasn't forgotten you. I mean, we can, we can zoom out in this book and, and look back again to see how God is working even in the life of Naomi and, and Ruth. I mean, consider what the author says. Ruth just happened to land in the field of Boaz. Just happened. She just happened to find the guy that she had to marry in order that the Messiah would be born into the world. Let that bake your noodle. It just happened. Just coincidence. That's not true. That's our God who's working in ways that we, we can't see. And, and God proves, to me at least, that he loves to work in the mundane of our lives where you can't see it. God loves to work in the hard times when you can't see it. God loves to lead us and not necessarily give us all the answers. Because if he, if he gave us all the answers, then we wouldn't trust in him. We wouldn't need to trust in him. And Ruth teaches us so many things. She convicts me. She's loving and loyal and humble and hardworking. And I was reminded again this week, I praise God for this book, for the book of Ruth. I praise God that he works in the mundane times. You know, Ruth is not just a wonderful story saying, be like Ruth. That's, 
in essence, what we want to get out of all of it. No, Ruth at the end in chapter four is a genealogy of Jesus. You take the book of Ruth and then jump ahead to the book of Matthew and you can see how it ties together. But Ruth points us to the one who comes out of her, the one who is her descendant. Ruth points to him. And what did he do? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite of his grace, emptying himself, died for us, left the ultimate riches to take on the ultimate poverty. And when you see that, when you understand that, it will thrill you. And it will change you. It's not just an intellectual idea, but it's something that just fills your heart and, and fills your life. <clears throat> Causes you then to live like Ruth. And it's only through Jesus Christ. God uses a Moabite woman in the lineage of Jesus Christ. An immigrant. God is sovereignly working, not only in this story, but in ours. Friends, if, if you're here because you want to be a good son and daughter and you came because mom asked you, I'm glad you're here. I know your mom appreciates it. And I hope you have a great day celebrating your mom. But if you're sitting there thinking that this Jesus is just a nice guy, and maybe someday when I'm old, I'll believe in him. You don't have that hope. You don't have that guarantee. And I want to challenge you this morning to consider Christ. You have to do something with Jesus. And realize that God is not neutral towards your sin. And you're not neutral towards God. And you need to turn from your sin and you need to trust in Christ. As the only hope for this life. And that would make today different than every other day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the challenge of your word this morning. I thank you for the life of Ruth. I thank you for your work in her life. I thank you for your sovereign control and, and many things in our lives that maybe a lot we can't see many that we don't understand. But God, we, we desire to trust in you. Help us to do that. God, I think of those in our midst this morning that, that are here but have no relationship with you and I ask that you would save them. That he would bring an understanding of the truth of the gospel this morning. God, I, I think of the many of us in this room this morning that are here and that love you and trust you and are following you are, are Christians because of our mom and her faithfulness to preach the gospel. May we be faithful in that same way. May we preach it in season, not a season. When it's popular and when it's not. And may we be found faithful by holding forth this gospel. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.